rain, rain, rain. Hello. Dirty Dog Man, I got some news for you. I'm in the podcasting business. Well, that's great, Beverly Turner. I'm in the entertainment business. The Chill Chill Chosen One. You're listening to Main Event Status Radio. You started it. You want to go to war? You got a war. You started it. We gonna finish. With Mr. Beverly Hills 90210. What is the fate of WCW? And I own WCW. The Dirty Dog Darcy. You wanna fight, man? You wanna fight? You got one. Only nobody tells me what to do. And she thought nobody tells me when to do it. Now let's get into the podcast. Recorded live in Atlanta, Georgia. Recorded live in the CNN Towers. Welcome <laughs> to Main Event Status Radio. Ooh. Oh my gosh, I, what just happened to that? I am the Dirty Dog Darcy. My cords were in the way because we had cramped in the janitor stall here in the CNN Towers. <laughs> And obviously, he is the Californian villain himself, Mr. Beverly Hills. What's oh happening, Beverly? Well, you know, I'm face-to-face with you right now, ear-to-ear, cheek-to-cheek, because we're in the Jander's closet. <laughs> I am sad they could not throw us in Ted Turner's old office to record the podcast series. Right, Exactly. But that's fine. So as you guys <laughs> probably guessed, as you guys probably read it in the in the title of the podcast, we are starting our sizzling summer series into WCW, and the first half of the series, the death of WCW. Yes, sir, Mister Beverly Hills. You don't know how excited I am to finally do a book review of the death. Of WCW. <laughs> I love that we're doing a book review. Oprah's book club. <laughs> well, where is Oprah? Dirty Dogs book club. Wait, do you, do you think that's why we're in the janitor's closet? Because Oprah's take took over Ted Turner's old office. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. So, what's your thoughts on? Well, I guess you're the one that I guess outlined the the, the summer sizzling series. So, I guess what's your <laughs> Besides the Dirty Dog wanting to do it, what's your reasoning behind wanting to, us to do the Death of WCW series? Well, I just thought it'd be fun. You you suggested it, and I was like, that sounds cool to me. I'm totally with it, totally down talking to the talking about WCW. And more so, I think, like, 
now that I'm one chapter through, just like revisiting this book in general, I don't know if I've become more critical over the past 10 years, but, or I think it's more like I've learned more. So now I can like look at this with a, with a critical eye and, and, you know, have fun that way, which is a lot different than the first time I read it. Yeah, cause I know I, well, I have both editions of the book, the first edition and the second edition on, and I'm taking pulling notes from the second edition in. I remember getting the first edition. And I think I brought it to college with you one time, and I think this would have been the year we were dorm mates. And I showed it to you like, awesome, that's a great book. You should read it. And yep. honestly, I started find, I started to read it last summer. And I only read, okay. I only read through <laughs> chapter one that I put it down and haven't touched it since. What a turkey, man. So what a, what a bad friend. <laughs> yes, yes, I am a bad friend. No, don't you remember how long it took me to read the Jericho book when you gave it to me? You you gave it to me and it sat under my bed uh, in my dorm room for probably six months. And then we were getting close to the end of the school year and you're like, can I have my book back? And I was like, oh, God, I haven't even opened it. <laughs> and then I read it in like a week. <laughs> I, I guess, you know, since you're not a big fan of Jericho, so I don't blame you, so... That's okay. <laughs> no, that was an interesting book, though. Maybe that's another another book review for the Dirty Dog Book Club, for the Oprah <laughs> yes. Oprah Book Club, yes. Dirty Dog. So, X, I know I read chapter one, I think a week or two ago, and I was excited to finally sit down and crack open the second edition and finally sit down and read the Death of WCW and do a Dirty Dog book review with Mr. Beverly Hills. <laughs> I cannot think uh, of anybody. The first meeting of the Dirty Dog Book Club is in session. I cannot think of anybody better to do to join me to help me host this Dirty Dog Book Club than the one and the only the the villain from the nine hundred two one zero. Yeah, the California villain. Right? Yes. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. Just to let you know, Mister Beverly Hills, I will be joining yes. you, and I will be help thrilling with the Californian villain in the nine hundred two one zero. That's that's what's up, man. So before we get into it, you, I know I noticed that you had a couple notes in the in the in the, in the notepad in the review outline for the chapter one. So I guess I'll right. kick it to you. Okay. So well, yeah, because I read all the forewords. Which, by the way, this is a daunting book to open in the online version because I couldn't find my legit version. I don't know where it is. So I oh. bought the e version and. Then it opens up and it's 453 pages, and I about cried. I was like, oh, Lord, 453 pages. But it's got, like, ten different forewords and pre-logs and crap like that. But yeah. I took a couple... What oh, do you think you got the ebook? Is it the, uh, the, the new edition? The new one, yeah, the new one. Okay, because uh, yeah, I, I got the, it off the ECW Press site. Okay, because I'm looking at the... You know, my, my, paper, my hardcover... The second edition has a forward. It has a first edition forward, then the yep. preface and the introduction. <laughs> I know. So I think it has like every version of a forward possible. Yes, and the acknowledgments start on page four nineteen in the second edition hardcover. <laughs> yeah, and that's not counting all the different prefaces and forwards and whatnot. So yeah, <laughs> yes. but anyways, but anyways. In the new forward question mark, I'm pretty sure it said that this was going to be a handbook or they, what they set out 10 years ago when they made it, that it would be a handbook 
a future promoters of what not to do. And then they went on to say that over the last 10 years, they've seen WWF, WWE do many of the same things that WCW did. Would you agree with that? And what things would that be? I guess just looking at chapter one, since I don't want to. Yeah, get, right. Get yeah, let's heads. just look at the things in that one. Yep. I guess in chapter one, I can kind of see somewhat that, uh, well, just look at the Great American Bash 91. You know, the summer of 91 where, you know, Hurd and Flutter had their dispute, which we'll get into here further down the podcast, Pike and all that. I always I could kind of see that with maybe Daniel Bryan, in, in okay. a sense, maybe CM Punk, in a sense. Yeah, that more the, of that. I think more of the CM Punk. Yeah, one. that the fans want a certain guy. Well, I guess, yeah, you, like you said, CM Punk. The fans want a certain guy, and the promoter just can't deliver. No, I don't think it's that. Okay, I well, wouldn't agree with you. Well, I think I think if you're looking at that, because what happened in Great American Bash 91 is that the champ walked out, and they had to scramble. So that's why I would say it's more like CM the Punk, CM Punk yeah. thing. Like, th- there wasn't anybody who the fans wanted in 91. They wanted Flair. Yeah. <laughs> that's who they wanted. And they weren't even mad that Luger was chosen. It's the way in which he was chosen. Fair enough. I guess kind of think of it that two, you know, what the heck was I just going to say? Well, I guess that even back then, Vince never really viewed WCW as competition right away. And I want to bring that up because I know we said this before in multiple podcasts. Vince doesn't look at UFC, football, you know, stuff like that, actual sports. Vince doesn't look look at those as legit competition, even though they pull away from his, pull away the ratings from his TV shows. So I feel like, you know, just like, I guess, back then, Vince is kind of pulling the same mistakes that he pulled 20 years ago. I'm not okay. saying... Granted, you know, they're in a different business, but still, I think I feel like Vince should still look at them as competition. Why are his fans tuning out of Monday Night Raw, Thursday Night SmackDown, and watching Monday Night Football, Thursday Night Football, or UFC, or whatever else? Yeah, yeah. I guess I'm looking more at the mistakes that he's made that, like, echo WCW. I What I would see more is, like, the um, what, what they really harped on a lot in this chapter was the pushing of, like, friends and cronies, which I would see. You know, there's no reason why, oh, God, for instance, that freaking god-awful... Sting versus Triple H match at WrestleMania. Like, I feel like that's a perfect example of them not learning from the, at least chapter one here, the early 90s, in that didn't they look at, you know, when Jim Duggan was brought in and Brother Brudai and, you know, all that junk, watching freaking X-Pac amble around the ring to fight with Scott Hall, or no, he was not, was, uh, whatever, to fight yeah. with Scott Hall or Kevin Nash freaking need a walker to get down to the ring. Like, this is the same thing. Yeah, right. This is the same thing. So, 
you Fair know. Enough. I can, that's a, yeah. Yeah, I guess yeah, it's just pushing their friends and all that. Right. And I mean like that's a, you know, that's something like these guys they harped a lot on in the um in this chapter. So yeah. I don't know. I it's it's funny they called it a, you know, guidebook of what not to do because if you look at and they, and they said this too, you know, TNA has done the exact things that WCW did in its dying years um that caused it to die and here to look at them they're like barely surviving like they're gasping for air so i guess maybe i guess maybe in a few years we might do a death of tna book series yeah yeah maybe who's to say but whatever we also get into chapter one which covers the years of 1988 to 1996 yep and the chapter title is entitled mr turner's Baby boy. Yep. So I guess I'll start it out that I had an opening quote from the first page of chapter one, uh, from page three in the second edition. Uh, WCW lost around $6 million per year in the first five years of, it, of its, its existence. Not a horrible figure at all, considering what they were giving Turner. Four hours of excellent, radi- or excellent ratings every single week for the year. Some within the Turner organization squat at the losses. But Ted Turner himself didn't. In fact, Turner was such a cheerleader for the company that when his board of directors suggested shutting down WCW in 1992, the argument was that they'd saved tons of money putting movies that they already owned in the WCW time slots. He, as in Turner, told them, told them that that uh, to, that putting that well, he told them that wrestling built the Superstation, and as long as he was in charge, they would always have a home there. He also told them never to bring the idea up again. I guess I wanted to shoot it to you, Mr. Beverly Hills, and have us kind of talk about how different would the wrestling business have been if WCW did close their doors in 1992? Um, well, it'd be very different. I don't know that we wouldn't have WCW. Uh, we wouldn't have had the Monday Night Wars, I guess. I, guess, I don't know. I don't yeah. know if this, how this has to do with the death of WCW. Yeah. Well, I guess I just wanted to mention it that if WCW closed in '92, I don't. I to me it was hard to see if the boom period starting in '96, '97, '98 would have came if WCW wasn't there to kind of help fuel the fuel the flame. If that makes yeah. any sense, that I guess that you know, without competition and somebody pushing Vince against the wall and making them. Forced him to change his ways. That I, if WCW would have closed in '92, I think we probably would still have the cartoon characters that we saw in '95, '96, as in Drink the Clown, Duke the Dumpster Drozzy, and all that. Maybe, but who's to know? We can't predict. I want to talk about the past, not the future. Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. So I guess I was just kind of interested on how things would have been different in the mid 90s if WCW would have closed its doors in 92. But yeah. Okay. So they they went on here to talk about WCW and they it seemed like they wanted to like make a connection from Georgia Championship Wrestling right to WCW and I found that to be pretty incorrect and I was just like 
kind of flabbergasted by that because I think they were trying to kind of push the narrative of like Turner and WCW, which was weird because that's like not true. You know, like WCW is from, you know, Jim Crockett promotions, which, you know, was the Carolina uh, affiliate of the NWO or (laughs) NWA, not the NWO of the NWA. And because they had flair, because they had the champion in the eighties, you know, they were, they were the ones who won kind of or became the head of the NWA in their kind of fight against um, McMahon's national um, expansion. But so and, and I like I said, they had a lot of those same problems that WCW eventually had. Go ahead. Next, I guess I had a question. You were talking about Georgia Championship Wrestling. It was Georgia Championship Wrestling that had the original uh, Saturday night slot on the Superstation, right? Yes, the 605 on sa- spot. On Saturday nights. And then after yep. after the, after Vince sold the Black Freddy's time, Black Freddy's situation to Jim Crockett, then Jim Crockett pretty much took over the Saturday night time slot, right? Yep, yep. Jim Crockett Promotions Mid-Atlantic had um, what which it was called WCW. It was called World Championship Wrestling, the show. So, okay. yeah. Okay, I just was just curious because I just wanted to make sure I, I have things correct because I want to make sure if I have things correct to also state it in the podcast for make sure... If I'm confused, I'm sure some of the listeners may be confused too. Want to get the the timeline correct? Yep, you got it. I guess the one thing I was, one thing that I, I kind of always was interested about, which was talked about in the book too, that that how WCW always loved having their ties in with the NWA, like you were saying, in the World Heavyweight Title. <laughs> that George Hackensmith, Smack and Smith. And Frank Gay got Schmidt. Yeah. Then yep. uh, from chapter, from page four on the, you know, well, yeah, I'll be quoting from the, the, the second edition, uh, from, from page four, the, that NWA that helped from, or that NWA that helped from WCW has its roots and uh, has its roots in 1905 as much as a rap group NWA does. The confusion stems from the fact that there, there are two different NWAs that turn into the Century National Wrestling Association and the modern day National Wrestling Alliance, and they, they kind of get, did some rundown on on the current NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, and how it was formed in 1948 in Waterloo, Iowa, by six different promoters, and they named the, the Des Moines promoter Pinky George as the first president, and the Kansas City promoter Overall Brown as the first NWA World Heavyweight Champion. I know WWE kind of does it too with what I guess what was a world heavyweight title tied in with the WCW title all the way back, like what WCW did. But I guess what's your thoughts on WCW trying to draw lines to the the National Wrestling Association and the world heavyweight title that Hackensmith held in 1905? Well, it's. Uh like like we have said it's you know that's playing with history it's trying to you know put your group as, as the oldest or the first or whatever so yeah i don't know they always do it it's just like the whole intercontinental title thing with that it was won in a tournament in rio de janeiro which yeah, you know? actually happened 
Yeah, right. So, but yeah. yeah, then uh, in another quote from page seven. In 1982, Vince Sr. finally caved and sold the World Wrestling Federation to his son. The deal, though, was that if Vince Jr. missed even one of his quarterly payments, he'd lose the promotion back to Vince Sr.'s three original partners, Bob, Gorilla Monsoon, Morella, who eventually got a life, uh, lifetime announcing gig out of it, Phil Zacko, and Arnold Skoland. Obviously, you know, we... Obviously, our, you know, Gorilla Monsoon was... I think most famously known for his announcing career. I was curious if you knew anything about his wrestling career. Well, he, he was a pretty big star in the Northeast just as a kind of monster. You know, he, the whole thing is he's from Mongolia, Gorilla Monsoon. But, yeah, he was just like, like a big monster heel and eventually turned face to be... Um, pretty yeah, that was that was mostly his role. He was pretty pretty big in the in the like sixties and seventies. Okay, then who was uh, Phil Zacco? So I looked up Phil Zacco. I guess he was on the original board of directors of the company that owned WWWF, which was um, called Capital Sports. Yeah. Yep, and uh, yep, he helped. Like I said, he helped Vince J McMahon start it. Died in 1993, um, and I found that he was investigated by the FBI in 1960. And I don't know why, but I just thought that was a really interesting point that I found about him. <laughs> and uh, I felt like Arnold Skoland was, well, at for me, was best known for being Bob Backlund's manager. I was just curious, on what else did he do in his wrestling career? Yeah, and I just, you know, he, he wrestled for over 30 years after he was a World War II veteran. Coming back, he started in 46 um, and wrestled almost until the 80s there. He was a tag team champion. I found that he lost his tag titles to the Sicilians, which uh, one half of the Sicilians was Captain Lou, Captain Lou Albano. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, thought that was interesting. I don't, uh, um, before, but, yeah. you, before you get Go to uh, your next point, I... I was just curious on what what do you think it would have been like if granted this is WCW but I guess what do you feel like it yeah. would have been like if you're Vince, you're following along right with the line of the uh of the authors. You're yes. talking more about WF than the WCW. <laughs> I guess what's your thoughts on what would WWF been like if Vince Jr. would have missed one of his quarterly payments and would have and the company would have went back to Gorilla Monsoon, Phil Zacco, and Arnold Scotland. Uh, you know, life would life would certainly be different because or wrestling would certainly be different because, you know, those guys were old school. They weren't in the you know, progressive mindset that uh Vince was in and I don't know, definitely would have changed you know wrestling forever there. But like the like the authors correctly point out you know the thing that really changed wrestling was cable tv and being able to get a show across the country you know when it was on you know just your local station you didn't know about the other stuff and uh being being able to get stuff on you know the usa network or tbs or whatever uh, really changed a lot, and I think that's the big, you know, that's the biggest thing. Yeah, which so. I, I don't, 
know, this past week it was it came out that Vern Gagne passed away on I think Monday afternoon this past week, and I know I guess that was one of the biggest things things about it's like about Vergani that he wasn't really able to change with the time so much when getting everything on cable, even though he did send a deal with ESPN and all that. And yeah, I think the well, show some he, he changed time. He just didn't change his booking style, and he had the same old guys there so by the time he got the espn deal and by the time he embraced cable it just wasn't a good product fair enough so yeah just i guess guy had to change with the times along with getting on cable yeah yeah i just so my next note was just that like this whole chapter has been about the wwf which is (laughs) just frustrating to me because i don't know i don't know you tell these guys who wrote this didn't really like wcw and even in the chapter that's supposed to be about the rise, it was about the bad things. And I get that it's called Death of WCW, but I've, I felt like the first chapter should have been called Rise of the WWF. Yeah, <laughs> which I guess, which is funny <laughs> too, which leads yeah. into my next note that, you know, which I kind of mentioned earlier about Black Friday with McMahon, buying the time slot on Saturdays and Sundays. Are you and, sure it's not Black Saturday? Oh, yes, Black Saturday. My bad, Gorilla. <laughs> Black, Black Friday, go to Target and buy yes. TVs. I think about Black Friday because of my line of work, Gorilla. Yeah, but sure. Yeah, Black Saturday with McMahon buying the time slot on Saturdays and Sundays and not taping anything from the line of studios, which I guess was part of the contract with Turner and, and all that or whatever. And for three-fourths three of, mil- three of a million dollars and selling it to Jim Crockett Promotions for a million dollars. I guess I just want to kind of get your thoughts on the whole Black Saturday situation. I just know that this was, man, this was hated big time by the people who watched Georgia Championship Wrestling because, uh, yeah, McMahon replaced the, whoops, replaced the traditional what they had known with just like taped arena matches of WWF stuff. And uh, there was just a huge revolt against this. Yeah. yeah then which yeah, which I agree with. I guess it makes sense that you know, if you're back then it's more of the territorial kind of stuff than if then one day then something completely different comes on my T V like yeah, I'd I'll be upset with it too. Well it's not just territorial to national, it's just a different territory. Yeah. It'd be the same if I was used to like well, world class and then something from portland came on now they are totally different styles or if i was used to you know um like awa and then florida came on it's just because it's what you're conditioned to i guess into tied in with me if you know i'll be on watching monday night raw on monday nights then it gets taken off then Lucha Underground gets put on Monday Night right. Raw. In the Monday Night yep. Raw time slot. So I guess, yeah, that makes sense. That's a good way to put it, actually, yeah. And I know on page 14, Crockett was quoted for saying that people blame Dusty Rhodes for Jim Crockett's Jim Crockett promotions dying, but Crockett wanted to put the blame on himself for having too much of an ego and spending too much money, which to me I thought was very cool. I wanted to note, note that because... I've heard a lot of interviews and such, you know, putting the blame on Dusty was nice to see one of the heads of JCP putting, putting the blame on himself and not passing the buck on somebody else that a lot of fans wanted to put the blame on. Yeah, well, 
let's be honest, not a lot of the fans, a lot of the number one wrestling journalist, Dave Meltzer. And yeah. you could tell that these two are Dave Meltzer acolytes because they are spouting the same line that he has said the last 25 years. Dusty's the worst booker ever. Dusty finishes suck. Uh, burnt the territory. All he does is put his friends on top. Well, then again, like what we were talking about earlier, what promoter wouldn't? Yeah, it's, yeah. I don't, I mean, did he go to the well too often? Sure, definitely. But, like, to say that he's the reason, and they do. Now, they put in the quote that Crockett puts the blame on himself, but they are definitely, like, pointing to Dusty as the as the reason here why they're going to, you know, go under. And then when when they're, like, like five years later, look who comes back. They go back to Dusty. Well, yeah, because he was a freaking good booker. Yeah, well, I guess that kind of ties in with your next note about, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Alvarez. Yeah, and, I got to it. Yeah. yeah, they just they hate Dusty here. Which, which, especially, do you, I don't. I guess I missed in the in the chapter. But do you know why they hated that Dusty put the NWA title on Ronnie Garvin? Uh because well, just because Garvin, uh, you know, he's he was never a main event star, and just kind of out of nowhere. He was now the champion, and that's pretty much it. He wasn't really built to it. Should have been probably Barry Windham at that point, in my opinion. But um, yeah, so they and he just didn't draw very well. And so in the book, I remember remember to, uh, it, them talking about that when Ronnie Garvin won the title, he said that he on TV as a babyface he will not defend the title until. That year's Starcade, which came across as a heel move. Are you sure that happened? Well, I guess I thought that's what they said in the book. I, could, uh, I, could I think he did. Around. He didn't, but I don't think he came out and said that he was going to do that. Okay. I well, I, I I could be wrong, Gorilla. I can look that up, but I I don't think so. Whatever, doesn't matter. Yeah, okay, doesn't matter. They they really kind of skip to they skip quick to uh, WCW getting bought by Ted Turner here. Yeah. And then they kind of skip right to, like, 1991, too, but go ahead. Okay, I, I got another quote from page 15. For the early years of WCW's life under the Turner Empire, the booking duties ping-pong between two men, Dusty Rhodes and Ole Anderson. Amazingly, despite, uh, despite, both, having had, uh, despite both having had success, uh, successful booking runs in the regional promotions in the past, neither man seemed to have any clue on how to run a wrestling promotion on a national basis. Both had their own agendas, namely pushing themselves and their friends through the high payment event slots. I know we kind of talked about this already, but who wouldn't want to do that given the pocketbook of Ted Turner? Yeah. And I mean, let's be honest, no one was successful at promoting the national. One person has been successful at promoting nationally. Right? Yeah. In the last... <laughs> In the last thirty years, you know, so so yeah. I don't know. You got it. He he says he wouldn't not be defending the title until Starcade. Fair enough. That is pretty stupid. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. But, yeah. I I don't know. I think just well, and not even just like I think you presented as like well. Now that we have money, we're just gonna poke our friends. But 
think of it more like, okay, you are now in charge of whatever. I I think about because I'm a sports fan. I think about like baseball teams. Who who do you hire as your pitching coach? Somebody who you've never worked with, you only have read stories about, or somebody who was on your team when you played and you know exactly what they do and you're a friend with them and you know they're going to successful, going to be successful. I, I would, who do I would, you choose? Yeah, pick my, pick my friend. Exactly. So why do we blame people for going to ones that they know? And I, like, I get that if it's proven unsuccessfully, sure. Or if it's proven that the person is Brother Brudai, sure. Obviously, he's not a main event wrestler. Yeah. But I, I don't think like turning to, at least I think behind the scenes, maybe when you look at like actual wrestlers, that's not as good. But when you look at behind the scenes stuff, what's, what's so bad about bringing people you know and trust? I, I can understand I on needing, needing to kind of change your mindset on, I guess those two guys, Dusty Rhodes and Ole Anderson, were more territorial guys, but, you know, why not just hire them and say, okay, you know, you guys been you guys had success in territory promotion. Well, let's try to expand it to national, you know, na- nationally and all that. Well, that's why, you know, when they ended up having successes with people who weren't from the booking side is people who were from TV production ends or arena promotion ends, things like that. Yeah. Which makes sense, but yeah, it makes total sense. Yep. But that's what happens though, I guess. So that's life. All right. Yep. So they get into, now they kind of just say like running down like funny events of the early days of WCW and you tell that this is definitely the Artie Reynolds section because Brian hasn't watched wrestling before like 1995 so he doesn't know any of that and <laughs> that's a joke <laughs> and also and also if you've read the wrestle crap book all this stuff is like verbatim from it so they just kind of like plucked it and brought it over but um the the first one I put was Black Scorpion. Have you watched any of the Black Scorpion stuff? I haven't. I've. Oh my god! I haven't. Sad. I know you chewed me out about this before, but I've heard <laughs> reviews on podcasts before, and from people I respect, and they said it's horrible. You said it's horrible, so I believe it's horrible. <laughs> insanity, insanity, magic tricks, people being, re- like, replaced by tigers. Um, Black Goo, Ole Anderson, Voice Machine, that's pretty much all you need to know. Spaceships, spaceships, all of it, all of it. And you, (laughs) to quote you from your notes, and they didn't know who it was going to be at the end. But we found out who it was in the end, and all I had to say about him was, Woo. Yeah, right. Well, it ends up being Flair. And um, again, I, I keep pulling from like my other interests. But like when you look at television shows, you can tell the really good ones know how their end. Or let me let me rephrase the ones that really end good and you can like 
be like, oh my god, they totally knew like three seasons ago exactly how this show was going to end. You're like, wow, like that's awesome. And when you can like trace back like seeds being planted, uh, you know, where they know where they're going, things like that. That's good TV or good storytelling. And you can tell the ones that are kind of being like made up as they go along. And that's bad and it's crap. And you can tell. And when with the Black Scorpion storyline, you know that they had no clue where they were going to go with it. And it just ends up being junk that way. I mean, like, you know, they had kicked around, like, because the whole idea, just for those of you who don't know, is, like, the Black Scorpion was somebody from Sting's past, and they were going to come and they were going to, um, you know, beat him up, whatever. <laughs> and they they kicked around a bunch of different ideas. You know, they first started planting seeds that it was going to be Ultimate Warrior. Well, in 1991, it wasn't going to be Ultimate Warrior. He was the <laughs> champion of WWF. Um, then they started planting seeds like, oh, no, maybe it's going to be like Al Perez, who was like a good wrestler, but never like a huge star. And, you know, they just they decided that he wasn't that big, big enough star. So they went with Flair. You know, if they would have decided it was going to be Al Perez, fine. Go with it. Make that your story. Make that what you're going to do and build him up. So, or I don't know, or maybe just don't unmask him. Just have him be the Black Scorpion forever. Who cares? But, you know, you need to have your end in mind when you start or else you meander and you end up with a ending that doesn't make sense. I guess to kind of tie it in with wrestling and right, you know, right on the same time frame, I always hear that the booking between WrestleMania 4 and WrestleMania 5 was, you know, with the whole, the, 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 with the makeup powers exploding, was probably one of the greatest year-long wrestling storylines yeah. that ever was. So, right. you know, back then, Vince liked to kind of, before he walked in, for example, before walking into WrestleMania 4, he already had an idea what he wanted to do with his big matches for WrestleMania 5, and he looked, looked backwards from it. Yep, and that's a perfect example. That's a really perfect example of he knew exactly where he was going to end up at WrestleMania 5, and he got to it connecting the dots, like you said, backwards. They had no idea how that Black Scorpion storyline was going to end, so they couldn't book backwards. All they could do is just go like day by day, week by week, and it ended up crappy because of it. Which I feel like, I know we mentioned TNA and all that in ways, Seem like TNA at times has been that way. Uh, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes they've had to because they've had issues of people walking out or people having you know drug problems or whatever. So they've had to kind of like spitball stuff. And you know we've seen this again when we talk about like guidebooks or whatever and who has followed and who hasn't. You know in the last few years of WWE, yeah. That's the one. They've uh, <laughs> they've had those things where even maybe they did have long term plans and they've gotten thrown asunder. Um, and we've talked we talked about this coming up on WrestleMania this year that they're not willing to stick with their plan. You know, it seemed like they were going to do the Reigns thing and then maybe they weren't. Uh, and then clearly the they went somewhere thing. else with it. Yeah, they're going to do the Brian thing, then they move back to the Reigns thing. And- you know, yeah, that, yeah, that you know, like what I remember you saying. Just if you have a certain plans, just stick to it. Who cares exactly what the fans want? You know, just 
know, do, do, do what you planned and go from there. Well, or, or, you know, like, no, I don't know, or know your fans well enough that you're pushing the guys that they're going to like, I guess is, is the thing. Um, yeah. Okay. So here's the kind of part where I, I kind of was getting like, oh my God, they're only talking about bad things. This is supposed to be the rise chapter, but, um, they kind of skimmed over some really good stuff. You know, that wrestle war 91 is an awesome card. And all they talk about, they're like, oh, War Games is so dumb because Brian Pillman got his head smashed on the cage. Well, that's because Sid sucks. That match was awesome. That War Games match is, you know, by some five stars, if not five stars, very close. Um, The Fujinami Flare match was awesome. And they talked about this Sid El Gigante match as if it was like the main event of Starcade and it lasted an hour. This this shit lasted like five minutes and El Gigante was just like a sideshow performer. You know, it it didn't matter in the long run, but they like really kind of harp. And if you didn't watch, which I know you weren't watching at this time, you probably thought that he was like a main character in the show or like this was like a featured match. Which it wasn't. <laughs> it was just a way to get Sid off TV. Out of the company. Well, because if people don't know, Ali Gante was Giant Gonzalez and all that, WWF. And yeah, he wasn't really that great of a worker. We all know Sid wasn't, wasn't really that, that great. He's one of the worst ever. And Sid, wasn't, Sid isn't really that great either. So if you put two crappy wrestlers together, you're going to get crap. Yeah. But again, it was short and really harmless. Yet there's like a page dedicated in the book to it. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's- I don't know. I guess I was just getting sick of in the rise part. They were talking about just bad things. I don't which, know. Which I can, which I can uh, see where you're coming from. That yeah, if you want to talk about the rise, why not talk <laughs> more about the things that are doing right or things that they're doing bad all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So at this point, I felt like I, and I would agree with them that probably the worst move that happened in these first few years was the handling of Flair and the eventual ouster of Flair um, and how it ended up, you know, with him uh, showing up on WWF TV with the belt um, and doing the whole real world champion thing. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, how do you let your world champion walk out? That's completely, completely silly. I know right. we'll be talking about that here later on in the book, but I just find it silly that Jim Hurd and Ric Flair couldn't sit down and figure sit down and figure stuff out and talk things out and say, okay, this is what Hurd team wants, this is what Flair team wants. <laughs> Why not try to, try to find something in the, in the middle to... Yeah. You know, try to fit both sides the best possible. Yeah, that's the thing with, like, wrestling wrestlers and promoters and stuff is they're, you know, they get on top by being, by by looking out for themselves and being selfish and, and, and all that. And then when it comes time to kind of play ball, they don't exactly know how to. And, you know, Flair, for a brief time was the main, you know, the main booker of WCW and 
when Jim Hurd, uh, who was just an executive, just a kind of a business guy, um, was brought in. He was very resentful of that, and Hurd responded by saying that Flair was too old. Um, he should get pushed on the card, um, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, and they just never got along to the point where, uh, Hurd was basically like, get out, get out, like leave, whatever. But he let him leave with the, uh, with, with the belt. I know. I I think there's also some, uh, disputes on, Heard wanted Flair to drop the title and Flair not wanting to, if I remember correctly. Yeah, right, to, uh, right. Well, it's very Luger? similar. Yeah, well, you know, it's very similar to what would become, you know, the Montreal Screwjob, you know, where, when and where he wanted to drop it. Which I know will Became talk, a big issue. Which we'll talk about when we get to year 1997. Right. So I don't want to really talk about that too much now. At least about mm-hmm. yep. the Montreal situation. right. But I know if during that time, too, with Flair, that when Flair won the title, is still under the NWA guys and all that, and how he had to put down $20,000 for a deposit for the title, and Heard was unwilling to give him the title, so Flair felt like he owned the title and, yeah. and all that, so that's why he just said, okay, if not willing to at least give me my $20,000 for me to drop the title, then <laughs> I'm walking out with it. Yeah, yeah. Which I huh? which I can understand. That's what he did. Which I can understand where Flair's coming from on that aspect. That that's how the NWA title was dealt with back then, you know. And then Flair had every right to get out the twenty thousand dollars plus interest for the to get the belt back. Right. Well, yeah. And I'm no like uh, intellectual property lawyer, so I don't know how that works. But definitely bringing it onto WWE TV was illegal. you can take it with you that's like if you like work at mcdonald's and you have to buy like the pants or whatever they can't like make you i don't know this is a terrible analogy let's move on yeah (laughs) but i know you wrote down that in your notes that heard mentioned that it was stupid on my part yeah in regards to with all how he dealt with Dealt with it, and we talked a little bit about the Great American Bash '91. I guess I'll let you kind of fill in with what happened at the Great American Bash back in 1991. Yeah, well, so they chose you know Lex Luger and Barry Windham as the two uh, folks to go for the title, the now vacant title, or whatever. Um, they promoted the show as if Flair was going to be on it. Um, Great American Bash 91 is really bad show. It's really bad. There's a tag team scaffold match with PN News in it, the Rap Master, with, you know, just, it was, it was a bad show. Um, and, uh, you know, they could have saved it. You know, Luke was going to win or what? Okay, sorry, well, I'll, I'll be interrupting. Did you just did you just go a chicken right I, there? I was I trying to interrupt you, and there. I really don't want to ring, ring my ring bell, but I had to interrupt you about the scaffold match. It wasn't a typical okay. scaffold match where, I guess, King of the Mountain rules were uh, shove your opponent off the scaffold. It was a capture the flag scaffold match. So the rules was not even announced until after the match. Right. 
which I to, to the fans. I've watched it. And he says he says like Jim Ross is like they're going for the flag, but they didn't say it like to the audience yeah, to the audience live in the arena. So I had to interrupt you about that to interject to say yeah, this is partially why the crowd in the arena shat on the pay per view is because of that. Yeah, so I mean. Or some good matches. The book said that the Ricky Morton Robert Gibson match was bad. I liked that match. Um, the The main event was actually a pretty good match too, but instead of just giving it to Luger, letting him portray the character he was, which was a good guy, they turned him heel. And I think the crowd that had already been really restless and not happy with the show up to that point, now having the good guy turn, just put it over the top, and they just couldn't handle it. Yeah, because I know, uh, I know I remember in the chapter after they were talked about that, that's one thing what led to Lux Luger being burnt out and walking over to the company, because they really tried to have him pull onto play the Ric Flair heel world champion, and that just burnt out Lux Luger because all the fans were pooping, shouting on his title reign because, yeah, they were trying to pull a Ric Flair World Championship reign out of Lux Luger, and Lux Luger wasn't capable to play that role. Yeah, I and, well, he had just been, he had been turned so many times since he began, you know, being a babyface, joining the horsemen, babyface again. You, he had, man, he turned so much. And the fans were burnt out on him just as much as he, I guess he was too, like you say. But yeah, so. I don't know. Yeah, that happens. So. Then, uh, I know you kind of, I know I'd look at your next note and I guess I'll let you kind of talk about talk about that you feel like it was the chapter was moving yeah it's just moving really fast yeah which i which <laughs> i noticed that you know just looking at the table of contents like that they crammed so much in in so so little pages that i was kind of scratching my head before i started reading chapter one on how were they going to get all all those years in so few pages yeah yeah i just wrote those moving really fast that's it i just want those just moving really fast um and they got to Lethal Lottery 91, which they didn't like. Which It was weird that it was Starcade. I feel like it could have worked as a as a pay-per-view concept, but it was weird that it was the biggest show of the year. Yeah. I just remember that show a lot because that is probably the pay-per-view that I've watched the most of any pay-per-view in my life. Because during high school, me and my friends before basketball practice, we'd walk down to this gas station called farm and home and we would go in and they had, they were clearing their video inventory and, uh, they had all these tapes and I bought, I bought two, I bought uh, battle bowl 91 and this one that had the road warriors on the front from WWF, which I didn't like as much. I've watched this pay-per-view of lethal lottery. We watch it every day at my friend Jared's house before basketball for like three months. So we probably watched it like 20 times. I don't, I kind of have an idea on what the lethal lottery is. And I'll give you my 
what I think it is, and I want you to give me the correct version of what the lethal lottery is, Jack. All right, we'll do. Isn't the lethal lottery the approach at random, in air quotations, pick yep. random people to be tag team partners, and they had a win their tag team match to go on to be in a two-ring battle royal, and you got to win. After all the tag team matches happen, the winners go into this two-ring battle royal and got to eliminate from eliminate your opponents from the first ring to the second ring then the sole survivors like have another over the top rope match and whoever wins is the winner of the lethal lethal lottery you got it that is exactly what happened okay because i kind of yeah because i thought that was that's what the rules were and i thought that was pretty much correct but i wanted to make sure i (laughs) understood it correctly yes yes but we just we watched it we would laugh at Bill Kazmaier, and we would laugh at, let's see, who else? Rick Steiner being really dumb and, and just things things of that nature. So that was pretty much it. Something that wasn't dumb was the <laughs> next topic's theme song in WCW during this time. <laughs> He's simply, simply a machine. Okay, so Rick Rude was in WCW after he left uh, WWF after his kind of failed um, main event push against the Warrior. And uh, yeah, he was awesome. And this is the Dangerous Alliance time, and he's just great from beginning to end until he kind of, you know, sadly gets hurt. Um, really kind of puts him out of wrestling forever, I guess. But yeah, he what, was awesome. What was the was it the Russell War ninety one or well, it must be Russell War ninety two where the they had the Dangerous Alliance take on Steen's Squadron in a War Games match. Right, I think it was ninety two. I remember renting that from from my local video store a bunch of times because that was one of my favorite War Games back then. Was yeah, the War Games, awesome. War Games with Dangerous Alliance against Steen's team and. And all that, and like what I was, you know, we were kind of singing to. I th- was Rick Rude's theme song in WCW during that time was probably one of my f- most favorite theme songs ever to be recorded. Yes. So I That's was good. happy when I got your notes this morning that I <laughs> wanted to talk about Rick Rude, and man, I love his theme song. Yeah, def- that would definitely not be a like death of WCW moment. That was a life of death of w- the life of de- life of WCW because he was awesome. Yeah, then I know during, then shortly after that, uh, Alvarez and Reynolds kind of talked about different bookers and all that, and kind of talked about uh, Kip Freya that he was hired. Yep. Yeah, he was hired on a as a, what, what the new head of WCW after heard. And he started to turn the comp- uh, the company around by using the wrestlers. How? On page thirty-one, uh, it was, it's been noted that his concept was simple: reward the men who did their jobs the best. In fact, he created a new bonus system in the company in which a five thousand dollar award was distributed to those who performed the best match on each pay-per-view event. Raises were also introduced. This led, amazingly enough, to workers suddenly being motivated in the ring which in turn gave fans events worth watching. I guess I wanted to mention that. I get, well, I don't follow UFC. I'll gladly admit that. But I guess what's your thoughts on giving guys incentives to perform the best matches? And to me, it seems like things they would do in the UFC and, uh, and all that. 
I guess I'll just start mm-hmm. with that. What's your thoughts on what's your thoughts on giving the wrestlers incentives to perform the best matches? I think it's a good idea. I don't see why it wouldn't be. Yeah, because I don't. To me, in ways, I wish WWE would do that nowadays. Sure. But, uh, just because you know you mentioned that you know even UFC nowadays give out best fight bonuses, and mm-hmm. which gives. You know, which I think uh, gives a UFC fighter something to fight for and strive for. It gives a UFC fans more of an excitement to watch UFC events to see. You know, will their favorite fighter, you know, put on the best match and get their get their best fight bonus? Mm-hmm. Which I yeah, I really like the idea that Kip Frey had, and um, you know that that I guess. I don't. Th- I may have missed it in the when they were explaining it in the book. But do you know how they they based how Frey based the best matches on? Yeah, it would be the road agents who were working each show. Okay. Uh, they would they would determine it. Okay, because I, I was kind of curious on like like you said the road agents Dave Meltzer's ratings, which I know it wasn't really you know the dirt sheets yeah, really that popular <laughs> back then. Was it based on crowd reaction or? Whatever else, so I just thought that was inter- an interesting concept that Kip Frey introduced, and I just wish that, yeah, like I said, you know, if not WWE, some other wrestling company would use that concept besides UFC, on you know, I guess also besides giving the fighters something to wrestlers to try for, also gives the fans something to watch. Sure, and I mean like one of the kind of supposed drawbacks of the best fight bonuses in MMA is that like guys seem to be going out and trying for the bonus instead of winning the match. Well, that wouldn't be an issue at all in uh, wrestling because it doesn't matter there. They don't, you know, they already know who's going to win. <laughs> so yeah. all they have to, so all they have to do is just strive for doing a good job. So it, it really, I don't know why it wouldn't work. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I just like the idea, and yeah, I just wish they would yeah. continue to do that. Yep, I think it's a, I think it would be a good idea. I don't know. It it does, though, it, you know, it invites some kind of backstabbing and backbiting stuff, though, because it's like, oh, well, my buddy is the, or no, maybe like me and you are having... We're in different matches, and your buddy is the road agent, and well, you get best match. Well, I thought I had the best match. It wasn't him. Uh, that's the only thing I see happening. Well, I guess it just it all depends on the road agents and you know Kip Frey or whoever else who is you know put the road agents where they are would have to put road agents who they trust and won't be biased. Sure, but yeah, like you like you were saying, that would be pr- pretty hard to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just something to throw out there, right? Then okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So they they next say they they're like, well, right when he was doing a good job, Kip Fry was uh, fired. Eh, kind of true, kind of not. Um, right from the beginning, even when he was hired, they kind of knew that he wasn't going to be a long term solution, and they wanted a wrestling guy back in charge. Now, whether this was correct or not, or if they should have just, you know, stuck with Fry, well, that's a different beast in general, but they kind of always knew, and now, you know, following along with where the big boys play, they're into this era right now, 
and they're reading the Dave Meltzer things weekly. So they knew then that he wasn't going to be long-term. So, yeah. Okay. That explains it then. Yeah. But yeah, you said, yeah, Frey was fighting and they brought Watson. Then, you know, mm-hmm. and, yeah, then, uh, you said that, oh yeah, that Frey was brought in to stop the short-term, um, gab, or stop the bleeding and all that, which he did. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Then, uh, yeah, so, which I guess makes sense, but yeah, I find it silly to bring somebody in just to, for short term, and especially if you guys want, especially if they wanted somebody, a, a wrestler as, in that role, why not, bring in Kip, Kip Frey in with, with with Watts, and then kind of trans, start transition Frey out then. Well, that's what they did. Okay, makes basically, sense. he <laughs> when he came in, he was with a a pretty big team of. Uh, like wrestling minds. Cause he wasn't writing the shows, obviously, yeah. you know? Yeah. So he was just like more of a like logistics guy. The only thing is he was also spending a lot of money. So they, um, yeah, I guess they, the they kind of switched it out there. With the bonus system and all that, I guess I can see why they let him go because, uh, because of that, you know, if they're losing more money than what they were wanted. Right, and he also just hired a bunch of new positions, which admittedly, like, made things better. Like, he hired a lot of different people to handle arena bookings and the presentation of TV, and it worked, but also that's when you add new positions, well, that's money you weren't spending before. So they were they were losing a lot of money during this time. Which is never any good to lose money, Beverly Hills. Yep, you got it. Yeah. So I'm going to skip my next one, but any thoughts on, you know, so the lots big, big, like thrust here, whatever was putting the title on Ron Simmons and uh, making the first, first African-American world champion uh, thoughts on Ron Simmons in general. Maybe if you've seen any of his time here or anything see, like that, I did not see any of his matches then, nor did, have I gone back to really watch anything. But I do like the idea of giving the world title to uh, African American to say that yeah your company was the first company to do such. I f- wish they would have gave Ron Simmons better, better, uh, better wrestlers to have matches with. Because yeah, just uh, you know, Barbarian so, was his big challenger. Yeah, so just co- uh, the guys that he, yeah he has given like you said Barbie. They weren't really that great of wrestlers, so it would have been yeah. nice to have them, ha- you know, ha- have. I don't know, don't know if it would have. Uh, Rod Simmons for the steam match would have worked out since they're both baby faces, but yeah, you know, have st- give Rod Simmons somebody who could help carry him through a good match to at least to try to hide his weaknesses that he had. But yeah. I guess yeah, that's just my thoughts about that. That you know, I thought it was cool what the what they did, but. Yeah, it wasn't really that great. And great, what? Yeah, they're yeah. Like I said, it just would have been better if they would have gave Ron Simmons better, better wrestlers to have matches with. Sure. Yeah, and I mean, like a lot of times, that's what makes a champion is their challengers. Yeah. But yeah. then I know uh, your next note, which I'll like get to for you because you're drinking Vader. We, <laughs> we mentioned Vader, you know, on last week's Speed Event Status, status Extra. I love Vader back back then. I felt like and I do too. They built him up as a great 
main event heel monster. And yeah, I felt like Vader helped carry the company from, you know, from 92 to 94. Right. Yeah, I just wanted to point out, you know, the the good things that they did do Vader as chief amongst them in this era. Um, I love Vader. I thought he was freaking fantastic. Just great all around. Yeah, that, yeah, like I said, well, I guess we will kind of get into it, but I felt like Vader was kind of squandered on once Hogan and his buddies came in, which was sad. Right. Yeah. I, I felt like besides the Flair and Hogan feuds that they had, which we'll get into here momentarily, I felt like it would have been great to have also Vader versus uh, Hogan feud, though, two kind of going back and forth. That Ho- yeah, those would be the two main monster heels that Hogan had a battle and kind of go back and forth on those two then some other heels too and those feuds were starting to run a little dry right but i feel like yeah. up to hogan coming in vader vader was great for wcw and wcw needed vader during that time in my opinion yeah one well, he you know he he's such a contrast to what wwf has always done you know just because he's not the the bodybuilder type he's just a bruiser every you know he's just so alternative and that's exactly what they needed yeah, it's which, just too bad that the storylines they built around him were really weird and bad which i guess we'll get into your next notable yeah the <laughs> skit then skits that wcw did in 92 93 which before we kind of get into that i kind of want to talk about the mick foley slash Cactus jack feud with mm-hmm. vader which which I know it, they talked about a little bit about about it and you know, the skits that they that they did, but I feel Boston like Cleveland was, brother. That, yeah, that, I feel like with with Mick Foley too, they had they had something great with Cactus Jack along with Vader. Yeah, you know, uh-huh. like we were saying about Vader, Cactus Jack was in the same mold as Vader that wasn't a bodybuilder. You know, he was mm-hmm. a three hundred pound guy that was willing to do sacrifice his body to to entertain the fans and to put on the best matches he, he could. And I thought yeah. Vader was... The only thing, again, is that, like, they weren't making a lot of money. Yeah. And that, so they, you know, they did what they thought they needed to. Yeah, so I guess I'll kind of let you get into about this whole skit stuff because I feel like you're better to talk about that than me. Yeah, I just wish you'd watched them too because this is just insane. Just so insane. They well, I remember in- have... I remember remember in Foley's first book, Have a Nice Day, that he wasn't really too thrilled about, about especially talking about the Vader and Cactus Jack's uh, feud, that he wasn't too thrilled about some of the skits that they taped for it. Right, the Lost in Cleveland one, because, like, he, yeah, was presented that he got, like, concussed, and he thought he was a, like, ship captain, and he, like, became homeless, and he was, like, the leader of this, like, homeless tribe of people, and it was just so weird. It made no sense. And then the whole spin the wheel, make the deal with the little person who was had one eye, and uh, they're blowing up boats. It's crazy. Yeah, it's well, crazy. I know the spin the wheel, make the deal was probably one of my favorite gimmicks back then. I swore I've said it before in the podcast that Halloween Havoc '93 was one was probably my fa- one of my favorite WCW pay per views of all time. That just like we were saying about you know 
uh, started K91. I must have rented Howling Havoc 93 a buttload of times with the Rumble 95 and WrestleMania 10. Yeah, those were my three go-to pay-per-views back then that I always had to go and rent them and watch because yeah, I loved the uh, Cactus Jack and Vader match, uh, Texas Death match. Yeah. It's right on. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Play the game! Play the game! Which I guess Everybody that leads into my, my next note about uh, Eric Bischoff. Okay. Uh, Bischoff was hired as, as first as, as an announcer, then became boss. When uh, things were changed up, that he brought the tapings to the Disney MGM Grand Studios, having months of TV taped all within pretty the same day, forcing the company to start booking long term and keep it, which along would, would uh, have them start saving thousands of dollars. I guess what's your thoughts on on Bischoff? Started to change things up on taping months of worldwide and Saturday night and all that in one sitting. Yeah, um, there are goods and bads to it. Uh, the obviously the good being you know saving lots and lots of money, travel costs, and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, I swear my neighbor right now is playing a freaking game of horse up there. <laughs> It, oh my god, what's he doing? Is he going to bust through the wall here? Um, I, I I hope your neighbor is not the shock master. Oh my gosh, he might be. He might be <laughs> lost in Cleveland right now. I don't know. Um, so, <laughs> but the the bad is that, uh, you know, and the, oh, and the, sorry, another good, another pro would be that, um, you know, they're kind of forced to stick to long-term storylines. But the con being that sometimes you don't want to, or sometimes you shouldn't. Um, you know, we talk a lot about sticking to long-term booking plans, but at the same time, you need to be flexible. And if things don't work, you need to be able to switch it. Well, they couldn't, you know, they because they have stuff taped, yeah. right? So they need so they needed to stick with it. And you know, um, people were getting hurt on house shows, so it led to awkward. Um, Times where people were defeated for titles that they had never won. Well, like the Freebirds with um, the tag titles. Yep. Uh huh. And Austin was tag champions with Pillman, but Pillman got hurt, so he, him, and Regal defended the titles, um, and they lost them. So I mean, so I mean, you get weird stuff like that. And I guess one of the cons, I guess, leads into my next note that. Between the pages of 45 and 47, they're talking about the original plan for WCW Stark in 1993. That was the main event of Vader defending the WCW title against Sid. And how Sid was supposed to originally win the title from Vader. Then, I guess it's well documented that the brawl between Sid and Arn Anderson on the European tour and all that, how because of what happened, Flair got the title and... Because partially because the fans wanted to see Flair a champ again since Flair just came back. I guess, what do you think, what kind of WCW would have been if in 1994 Sid would have walked in as world heavyweight champion? Uh, well, they were building to it. It would have been a hot feud. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what Sid, you know, holding the title would have been like, though, but hmm, I'm not sure. Because I think that the... It, I believe if the Vader Sid match would have happened at Stark in '93, I don't think 
you and I would have liked Star K ninety three as much as we did. Yeah. And, right. And I don't think the Sid Vader match would have been as great as the Flitter's Vader match. Oh sure, of course. That well that's hundred percent true. Well I guess do you have any any thoughts you'd like to talk about the whole whole Anders double A and Sid situation that happened that oh, hasn't just, been said yet? No, insanity. Just so crazy. They're nearly killing each other with scissors and and whatnot. I don't know. All it led to for me was in WCW 2000, which I guess we'll get to, a very awkward uh, time where Vince Russo, because he thinks everybody knows the backstage stuff, is like, what you going to do? Get your scissors, Sid? And he kept <laughs> saying it. And like the crowd was like, what's he talking about? And they're just like sitting there and he like keeps saying it. Cause he's like, well, they must not have heard it. So he says it like three or four times and everybody's like, <laughs> and Mark Madden's about, yeah. and Mark Madden's like, everybody knows what he's talking about. <laughs> it's so weird. I watched that, uh, that nitro for, for a different podcast and we were all like what this is so stupid why you can't assume that everybody knows stories from almost 10 years ago uh so dumb then i don't uh then on pages 49 and 50 uh alvarez and reynolds talk about hulk hogan and how he had his falling out with with mcmahon after winning the wwf title at wrestlemania 9 and that McMahon wanted to put the title on guys like Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels because they could connect with the younger fans Vince wanted to go for. And Hogan yep. didn't, didn't like that, or didn't like the idea of being booked to lose to Bret Hart, and he refused to drop the title to Bret at SummerSlam. So Hogan decided to drop the belt to Yokozuna, the king of the ring, then left. Then with the help of Ric Flair and Eric Bischoff, they were able to sign Hulk Hogan to a WCW contract. Right. And sorry. my thoughts on this oh sorry. My yeah. thoughts on this are just that like the Hogan signing and other signings later really show that um Turner was willing to sign anybody for any price, but ultimately it's kinda like what led to downfall of WCW because it's with no discretion. Like they're not thinking about who is being signed and should we sign them and are they worth it? Um, and are they with the money that it's going to take to sign them? Because, yeah, signing Hogan was a big coup and, and it, you know, it really, really did a lot for him. But I don't know. I don't know if it really is what they needed. Yeah, I guess that it kind of bothers me that Hogan really didn't want to have the feud with Brett and put Brett over and wanted to hold on to the title, then Brett jumped to WCW and helped and got the title and all that. But yeah. I guess, yeah, kind of with my next note on pages 50 to 56, the Hogan and Flair feud draw, drew big buy rates for WCW at the time. And at Starcade, when Hogan fought the Butcher, Brother Brunei, it only did a 0.6 rating, down 40% 40, 40 from Highland Havoc, where Hogan and Flair fought, which was... Uh, around a 1.0 rating. Right. So I guess, you know, kind of like what we were talking about earlier with Ole Anderson and Dusty Rhodes as bringing your friends and things don't always, that doesn't always work out. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, the, the Hogan versus Flair deal, that could have went forever, but Hogan 
exerted his power that he always won, you know, and looked stronger. Um, and yeah. Which I yeah. guess that's kind of why I wanted to mention about, you know, his fun out with, out with WWF and McMahon in, in 93 in the WWF and not want to drop the title to Brett because I felt like that could have helped boost Brett Hart up greatly if, if Hogan was, was willing to play ball with McMahon and stay through SummerSlam and build up, build up Brett by dropping the title to him in a decent match. Because I'm pretty sure Brett would have been able to carry a great match out of Hogan in 93. Mm-hmm. Angry. But yeah, I guess yeah, my next one was on page 58. Turner was wondering why WCW Saturday Night was doing just as good ratings as WWF Monday Night Raw. And Bischoff responded that it was because the night of the week and because WWF had prime time. So Turner gave Bischoff one hour of live programming on TNT on Monday nights to compete with the WWF on the USA Network. Yeah. I, I don't we talked about it on the... Monday Night Wars, Monday Night Wars podcast we did with Captain Obvious a few months back, but um, I guess what's your th- thoughts on WCW Saturday Night doing great ratings, and Turner wanted to compete with Vince and giving Bischoff one hour on TNT every Monday night? Yeah, I do, and and the authors seem to think that they would have been fine staying on Saturday. I don't. I think that there is a a cap on how good you're going to do on Saturday nights, especially from um, 7.05 Eastern, which is 6.05 here. It's not even in prime time. Um, So going to, you know, real prime time on Mondays, your, your ceiling is higher. Now, yeah, they, they weren't doing horrible on their Saturday one, but they're, their cap is a lot lower. So I, I think moving to Mondays was a good idea. And I know we kind of talked about it before, but I felt like, you know, well, Vince, even when night, uh, WCW got on Monday nights, Vince didn't see them as competition right away. And if they would have, like we were saying, if they would have stayed on Saturday nights or any other night of the week, Vince, no matter of how great WCW's ratings were, I don't I don't feel that Vince would ever see them as legit threat unless they moved to went to Monday nights like what they yeah. did. Sure, sure, yeah. It's really a way to say like here we are, deal with us. And yeah, I felt like that yeah, if WCW would have got any other night, I don't think Vince would have been challenged like he was challenged during the Monday Night War period. And I don't feel like Vince would have had to Push his balls to the wall and ha- had been forced to change his ways out of the cartoony era of the new generation to the added to an era. Sure, I'd agree with you. Then on page 60, the date was Monday, September 11th, 1995, the first time WCW Nitro and WWF went head to head, which I wanted to uh, take note and make, make it up. Known exactly what was the first what what was the first Monday those two shows went head to head. Yep, refer to episode blank for a lovely review of said episode. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure we'll do sometime in the future. We don't know when. No, we did it. We already did. Not that. Not that episode. Not the, the nitro. First, not that we did the first nitro. That was in September 11th. What? 
Yeah, we did, we did the first Nitro that went head to head with Raw. We, we did Nitro one with Nit- Luger. Nitro one was on September 11th, Beverly Hills. Oh, it was one where they didn't go head to head. Well, I don't care about the first one they go head to head. I go. I care about the first Monday Nitro. Okay, let me Google first Monday Nitro. No, you're right. It was one that wasn't head to head, but that doesn't matter to me. The okay. first one in general is what matters. Okay. Well, the it, <laughs> yeah, we did cover the first Nitro back during the right. month of first, but I think the I think that the second episode was I think the September 11th episode, if I remember correctly. Anyways, this isn't about arguing who's right and who's wrong. Since don't get caught up in semantics. Both of us are right and both of us are wrong. Whatever. <laughs> so I got a quote from page 61. In the beginning, both WWF and WCW had completely different mindsets about what it what it meant to go head-to-head. McMahon's WWF had traditionally built a bubble around itself, not acknowledging the not not, ugh, not acknowledging non-WWF pro, uh, promotions, champions, wrestlers, etc., with only very rare exceptions. The most notable, most more notable, being the real-world uh, champion Ric Flair jumped to the WWF in 1991, which we talked about. But even when there was no acknowledgement of the NWA, WCW, etc., although they were, although they were now going head to head with WCW on Monday nights, they decided to operate as if they were not going head to head. There was no competition, and that it was business as usual. I guess I want to get your thoughts on on how silly it was. Uh, McMahon's model of competition of that he really didn't have competition. Yeah, I I think it's pretty silly too. Like you said, there there are things to be said for just like kind of holding your line and um, you know not letting other people change you. I see that, but on the same token, you gotta you have to change too to you know keep keep fresh and you know that kind of thing. Next, I know. Uh, I didn't note that that the the yeah the September eleventh, nineteen ninety five Raw did a two point two rating, while that Nitro did a two point five rating that week. So I guess yep. uh, how how do you, how should the De- McMahon and the WWF change their formula on Raw once Nitro debuted on TNT? How should they have? Yeah. Um, how should they and when should they have? Well, they should have probably tried to soon, I guess. Well, what they, well, you know, what they ended up doing is putting main event caliber matches and angles on, which they hadn't been, you know, CR 95 series, right? Like there was very few of those and that, that was their biggest change. And yeah, they could have done that earlier. That would have been it for me. Yeah. Cause I don't know we've mentioned this in our 95 series that it was most of the rides that we watched up to WrestleMania 11 was completely hard to get through because yeah they're dry and it was primarily squash matches and we may have saw a main event level match or a upper mid card level match maybe once a month if that so right. yeah, that was so yeah that was kind of hard to hard to get through then uh during mm-hmm. this time to up to yeah right on September 95 they let WCW let go Steve Austin. Yeah. So I got one last quote for a chap for this chapter, which okay. I had to mention uh, WCW firing Steve Austin in ninety five September ninety five. 
in, in hindsight, September 1995 was was one of the most pivotal months in the entire history of pro wrestling as three things happened that helped change the course of the business forever. Nitro debuted, which ultimately led to the Monday Night Wars and their greatest worldwide boom period in wrestling history. WCW also fired the performer who, more than any other, was ultimately responsible for the rebirth of the WWF, the turnaround in the wrestling war, and the creation of the Vince, of the Vince McMahon as a certified billionaire with the resources to help keep his company alive for decades to come. And that very same month, it was announced that Turner Broadcasting was merging with Time Warner to create a simple, uh, the single largest medium conglomerate on Earth. While some in WCW will confuse the impact that will, uh, some will confuse the impact that this had on the fate of WCW, the the reality in this merger, that in that AOL a few years later, ultimately turned WCW into a company that needed to carry its weight financially, something that it never had to worry about before. What it couldn't, that did, in the fact, led to its, led to its demise. <laughs> Page 62. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot in there. You, <laughs> that was a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, the, the firing of Austin, um, although, you know, they had booked him so badly, how would they know? that he was going to be good because <laughs> at that point he was, he was nothing. Uh, they made the right decision fire him because they had booked him so badly. It would have taken such a big turnaround for them to realize his potential. Well, you know, like with him and triple H and all that. Yeah. They booked. Yeah. Same with triple H. They booked well, him. triple H was just on the bottom. They didn't do, they didn't do a bad job. He was just really new. Yeah. And I'm sure if they would have known, if they could go back and change how they booked Austin, if they would have realized how great Triple H would have, what could could become and did become, yeah, I'm sure they would have kept both guys in the company. Yeah. Oh, exactly. They just couldn't. They just didn't see it. And I mean, like, is that a lack of foresight? Probably, but you know. I guess. Yeah, we kind of talked about you know Nitro already and a little bit about Steve Austin. Guess what's your thoughts? Do you have any? Uh, memories of Turner Broadcasting merging with Time Warner back in ninety five. Not in nineteen ninety five. I I was you know nine year olds aren't huge on <laughs> looking at stock markets and business mergers. So no, I don't have too many memories of that back in nineteen ninety five. Well, I assume thugging and bugging and, and uh, being the villain in the nine hundred two one zero when you were a nine year old, Mister Beverly Hills. I couldn't <laughs> assume you would be a little further advanced than any other typical nine year old. <laughs> Well, I like to think I was too, but I wasn't like flipping open the Wall Street Journal and be like, "Oh my God, AOL Time Warner." No, like, yeah, I guess I just want what kind of <laughs> wanted to ask a little bit about sure about that. Yeah, well, yeah, well, I mean that that as we'll see is ultimately kind of the what leads to to the real death of WCW it is that merger because uh, Turner is taken out of direct power yeah, so do you feel like if none of those mergers have happened let's say uh, turner broadcasting would still be just simply turner broadcasting headed by ted turner do you feel like wcw still well, could have lasted longer than what it did oh there'd be certainly a, a chance because as we're seeing right now with tna because it is owned by one family 
and they are ultimately in control of if it is open or not, despite how much money they lose, there it is. They get to keep open. So, yes, I, I do think it would have stayed open longer. So do you, so you felt like if WCW would have continued on something under the Turner Broadcasting, do you, so do you feel like after March of 2001, WCW probably would have become equivalent to TNA Wrestling where it's not really No, not necessarily that. No, not necessarily that. I'm just saying like it probably still would have stayed open. Okay. I don't know if I I don't know how it would have been. I don't can't see the future. Okay. So I guess <laughs> that's chapter one for the for this podcast. We'll be back with chapter two next time. Uh, we might as well get into a little plugs for the podcast. Yes. You guys can listen to us at our website, madeeventstatus.com. Again it's madeeventstatus.com. You guys can also listen to us at our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash Radio. That's all one word, soundcloud.com slash Radio. You guys can subscribe to us on iTunes. Search us out in the library. Subscribe to us, rate us, review us. We want to beat Jim Ross's Ross Report because we're tired of his <laughs> saucy Oklahoma attitude and all that, all that saucy crap. And you guys can also... Interact with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash main event status radio. That's all one word, facebook.com slash main event status radio. And Mr. Beverly Hills, how can they interact with you on the Twitter machine? You can find me at Beverly Hills M-E-S. And I always find it entertaining seeing Mr. Beverly Hills interact with people on the Twitter machine when he's cruising and bruising. (laughs) When he's uh, cruising and bruising on Sunset Boulevard. He does, that, he does that like 22 hours a day when we're not podcasting. He, I even <laughs> saw him this past week. Cruise. I, I saw him cruising, cruising in his roofless Cadillac <laughs> read, reading chapter <laughs> one this this morning before we started the podcast. I was just like this with my, with my iPad. Driver, driver, go slower. I'm reading chapter one of Death of WCW. Cruising down Sunset Boulevard, going to Atlanta, GA, where we can cram this janitor's closet in in, in uh, Turner, uh, Turner CNN Towers. <laughs> That's how it goes, man. And for me, it's Dirty Dog MES on the Twitter machine. Dog as in D-A-W-G. Dirty Dog MES. Mr. Beverly Hills, do you have any final thoughts or closing comments? No, sir. I am excited to close a chapter in, of 1995 and get into 1996. Yes, me too. In WCW, because big things were happening in 1996. Yes, big things on the horizon, indeed. So let's count down the let's count down 1995 and get into 1996. You got it. For Mr. Beverly Hills, I am the Dirty Doc Darcy. We catch you guys next time in 1996. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Bang, bang. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that is fantastic. That is our show, ladies and gentlemen.